The title of my sermon is Faith That Lifts the Roof. Amen? And the goal of our time is a singular focus, and that's to elevate your current level of faith to remarkable new heights. Amen? So that we live those faith-filled lives that God has called us to. And so I want to start with a question before we dig into the text. What are you prepared to do to encounter the Lord in your own life? How far are you prepared to go? What price are you prepared to pay? Your thoughts, your reflections, what you're ruminating on right now is dictating and determining where that level of faith sits in the landscape of the Christian life. And so we're going to be reading the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. And it's in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn with, to me, turn with me to Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. I will read the ESV translation. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that thus they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, they never saw anything like this. So we need to unpack some of the limitations, some of the barriers, and some of the obstacles that can prevent us having radical faith in our lives. And for context and a bit of scene setting, Capernaum was a town in Galilee. And if you read Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, you will see that Jesus had been out on ministry tour. He had been out healing the sick. Almost every single person that he encountered that was sick, he healed. Amen? And so there was great expectancy. His name was reverberating around every town, every dwelling in and around that area. He had essentially made the area his own personal mission field. And he had generated a crowd of followers who were intrigued but also interested in Jesus' life and how he was choosing to minister. And so we pick up the story, obviously, in Mark 2. And we see that he was preaching 
to a crowd that had gathered to hear him. Can I tell you something? In today's selfie, narcissistic, self-indulgent world, it is not difficult to gather a crowd. If you're on social media, you just have to create the right type of content at the right time, post it to the right platform with the right hashtags, and after a while, you will gain a, quote, following, right? And so we should not be too impressed, dare I say it, with the fact that Jesus could gather a crowd. He had been healing people for weeks and months before this moment, so this was hardly breaking news that he was able to gather a crowd. And yet Jesus' humility is unequivocally on display because he's preaching. And the crowd had probably gathered to see signs, wonders, and miracles. If that's what he's been doing for the previous weeks and months, that's what you would think he would be doing in that moment. But what's he doing? He's preaching. And the house, almost certainly, scholars, theologians are pretty clear, it would would have been Peter's house that he was in at that time. And so I wonder if the crowd in that moment had a a moment of disappointment, tinged with disappointment, because they were expecting to see miracles, and Jesus is preaching. And furthermore, we get no visibility on what he was actually preaching on. All we are informed of was that he was preaching. And I'm sure it would be strong theology, would have been groundbreaking stuff, but we don't even get a hint on the theme or the topic, which tells me that Jesus placed the word ahead of miracles. And it forces an uncomfortable question in our own lives. Do we prefer God to do the miracle in our life? Or do we prefer God's word to change our hearts and lives? Because so often as Christians, our default attitude is to pursue the miracle, the breakthrough, the victory. And the word of God is relegated to the margins of our lives. Can I also tell you a little bit of a secret? No preacher likes his sermons being interrupted. Amen. And that's not our cue to interrupt me. But in verse 3, we pick up the story again. He was preaching to them, and what happens? The unimaginable happens. Four men turn up with a paralyzed man. They have one agenda, to get their friend to Jesus. Do we display the same urgency with the needs of our friends? Do we have that robust intentionality and desire to do whatever it takes to get our friends to a church service where they could encounter God, to a gathering, a cell group, or some expression where they will encounter the living God for themselves? I wonder. All we know is the physical, and eventually we see the spiritual. They are almost certainly residents of Galilee. They would have no doubt seen or heard about Jesus. That's why they came to that house. But there's a problem. The house is packed. It's like an 11 o'clock service at KT. No room at the inn, so to speak. And so we have three options. I want you to, you can choose completely of your own volition. You can play one of three parts. We could start with the obvious person, Jesus. You're preaching. The place is packed. You can't see the floor. Everyone is there to listen to you. Nobody else. There's like dust and debris starting to fall from the roof. What is going through your mind? You're thinking, what on earth is going on? Maybe you're someone in the crowd. Maybe that's your position. Heard about Jesus. Your friends have told you about Jesus. You've heard about the miracles. And so you're a member of the crowd. And you see this happening. 
a hole getting torn in the roof of a house that isn't yours, what's your response? I would be aghast with the level of faith and expectation that these people are prepared to go to to meet Jesus. Or you can be Peter. And I have to be honest, that would have been my position. I would be furious that four men who I don't know are tearing a roof in my house, tearing a hole in my roof. How would you feel? You don't know these people. And they're tearing a hole in your roof. Wow. And the worst part is Peter was in the house. And so the very crowd that had blocked these four men from bringing the paralyzed man in are the same crowd that are now blocking Peter from climbing up the side of his house to get to these men to tell them to stop tearing my roof off. Hmm. Do you know what it tells me? Even our best laid plans can be interrupted by the living God. Can I get an amen in the house? We need to live in continual expectation and anticipation of God doing that. Everything changed in that moment. Our natural lives need to collide and conform with the things of the kingdom where the supernatural becomes normal and natural in our lives. And here's the reality. These were ordinary men. We don't get their status in society. We don't even get told their names. Just ordinary men prepared to demonstrate extraordinary faith, to do utterly remarkable acts. These guys were prepared to do whatever it took to get to Jesus. Are you prepared to do the same today, friends? We can't deny the reality of this moment. In our own hearts and in our own lives, we have to be prepared to break beyond the barriers, the limitations, the challenges, the circumstances of our lives to get to Jesus. Because, you know, there will be no breakthrough in our lives if we're not prepared to take this level of radical faith. If you think mediocrity and a flimsy prayer before you go to bed is enough for God to break through, forget it. The Bible teaches us, pray without ceasing. You read it in Luke's gospel, in Luke 11. The disciples said to Jesus, show us how to pray, because they had seen the connection between Jesus' ability to perform miracles and his prayer life, and the level of faith that was on display. It gets worse or better. There's no hesitation. There's no cautious attitudes when they're faced with the crowd. They breached all the protocols, all the processes. They stretched beyond natural thinking and parameters. They had a resilience to do whatever was necessary for the benefit, by the way, of their friend, not themselves. Now, we don't know how heavy the paralytic man would have been, but they were pretty ambitious and pretty purposeful in their efforts. They examined and explored every possible outcome and they found a way where there appeared to be no way. And verse 5, I believe, is hugely significant for us as believers. When Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? Not the paralytic, he's on the bed. He doesn't get a choice in the matter. He can't exactly get up and leave. So whose faith is he talking about? He's talking about his friends. Do you know what that says? Our faith always has to be demonstrated in an outward, visible 
appearance. You cannot secrete or privatize your faith, certainly not in the landscape and culture that we live in today. Now, I have to be real. I wouldn't have thought of this. I would not have necessarily been willing to lug my friend up the side of a two-story house and start tearing a hole in the roof. So yes, I have my limitations. Where do you sit on that landscape of faith today? These four men literally had faith that lifted the roof. Their approach was unique, and they were obviously desiring to pay whatever the cost, financial, physical, spiritual, to achieve the goal. Are you prepared to do the same today? Because without that radical approach and attitude, there will be no breakthroughs in our lives. And I'm not prophesying doom and gloom. I'm stating facts according to Scripture. Because we need a shift in our perspective, in our outlook, and how we establish the supernatural as a natural element and overflow. That we should become surprised when a miracle doesn't happen. Not when it does. But that requires a shift in our perspective and in our thinking. Our hearts need to resonate with the outrageous outcome that these men were prepared to take and do whatever it took to get the job done. And as you enlarge your heart, you will possess a deeper, stronger level of faith that will stretch you beyond your current capacity. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now for me, this is awkward and awesome for any number of reasons. Because if I'm Jesus... If I'm a member of the crowd, if I'm one of these four men, surely the goal, the outcome, what they're trying to achieve is obvious. They want the man healed. And Jesus is talking about forgiveness of sins. Like, hello, if I was one of these four men, I would have been taking time to remind Jesus of why we're here and what his role and responsibility is. Healing, please. But Jesus is on another tangent. Why? Sometimes... Jesus needs to deal with the spiritual before he deals with the physical. Have you thought about that in your own life, how that applies to your own life? The challenge for us is we always want the breakthrough. We're not prepared to deal with the sin. We're not prepared to deal with the stuff that's ugly, the stuff that diminishes and distorts God's ability to move in power in our lives. But yes, Lord, give me the breakthrough, give me the job provision, give me the financial increase, pour out your blessing and everything else over my life. No, no, no. Jesus has order. It's pretty clear. This man didn't come for forgiveness of sins, and yet it's made available to him. And we will discover why in a moment. But it's a shift in perspective. It's unexpected, and it's pretty intrusive on the man. But do you know what it also tells me? That God will always do more than we expect him to do. Amen! That alone should fuel some increased faith in our lives. This man heard the best words that he could ever hear. You're adopted. You're now a child of God. You're in the family of God. You have the forgiveness of sins. But I also think Jesus knows what humanity's greatest problem is. Outwardly, the need is obvious for this paralyzed man. But the internal is maybe not so obvious. The condition of his heart. So Jesus dealt with the sin first, then the healing. And I wonder, in our own lives, are we comfortable with that order and that arrangement? Too often we want the breakthrough, we want the blessing, we want the provision, we want the miracle, before we admit that we need to deal with the sin in our own lives. 
Jesus has other ideas, which means we've got one choice. We've got to get compliant and committed to the standard and the order and the priority that Jesus has. However, it gets worse for Jesus. Verses 6 through 8. And now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Dare I say it, it's pretty usual for us as Christians. Jesus had to endure and entertain critics. And the more you become more like Jesus, you will attract more criticism, more suspicion, and accusatory remarks will be leveled to you. Can I give you some comforting words? Get familiar with it. It's going to continue. It's not just going to fall away one afternoon. These scribes were dismissive of Jesus and the authority that he had harnessed in that moment. Why? Their legalistic mindset had diminished their ability to accept the authority that Jesus possessed. And I wonder if that's the same for us today. Do we have a diluted, fragile, narrow perspective of Jesus' authority in our lives? Are we at a place and a point in our own lives where we can't even muster the courage and conviction to challenge Jesus? Because they're muttering away in their own hearts. They won't challenge him publicly. Do you, do you pray prayers like that? God, why haven't you done this? When are you going to do that, Lord? Huh? No, just me? Okay. But that's the reality, friends. And we need a shift if we want to move forward in our lives. The ridicule, the rejection that Jesus had in that moment was steeped essentially in silence and sarcasm that's in their hearts. And we can adopt a similar position but, praise God, Jesus knows who he is. He knows the authority that he possesses, and he knows how to neutralize every challenge, every criticism, and every threat to his authority in our lives. Amen. And he's not backwards in stepping forwards. Without a moment's pause, no hesitation, no uncertainty, he faces his foes with fierce passion and potency. Verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven... Or to say, rise, pick up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So at a surface level you could think maybe Jesus is trying to confound his critics with some deep theological question, some chaotic conundrum of confusion. But no, it's actually more profound than that. He's piercing their rigid, remorseless hearts because when you take a step back and you view the totality of the question, one singular element emerges. Anybody can ask that question. Those statements are easy to make, but only one of them can be proven. There's not a person in this room that can stand on this platform and prove that they have received the forgiveness of sins. You can talk to me about it, but I don't know the condition of your heart, and likewise, you to me. However, if you're paralyzed and you're on a bed here on the platform and I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk, you're either going to do it or you're not. And that's the litmus test right there in the moment. One is provable, one isn't necessarily provable. And I love the perspective that God gives us 
in those moments because he doesn't give any extenuating circumstances to appeal to or to explore. There's straight up choice. Two possibilities, one being intimate and inward, the other outward and obvious. One spiritual, one physical. It's a straight matchup between the spiritual heavenly reality and the physical earthly reality. And that question that he asked applies to you and I today. Perhaps like me, you've sat there and you've considered that question and you've fluctuated between the two answers. Remember, Jesus forgave the man's sins first. He hadn't even asked for it or even alluded to it. And I wonder, that's what Jesus wants to deal with in our own lives. He wants to appease the affliction that challenges every part of our life before he brings the healing balm of forgiveness and healing that can emerge in the physical realm. When are you going to counteract the deception and the distrust that you may possess in your own heart and embrace the enormity of God's love and adoration towards you? Because in verse 11, he declares, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose. That's a really good place to say amen. Amen. And immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Do you know, Jesus didn't even permission these cynical scribes to present a response. He immediately addresses the paralytic. He knows he's on trial, dare I say it, in this moment. Doesn't allow them a moment for a fleeting, feeble reply. No, he turns and he addresses the paralyzed man. Now, remember the scene. Jesus is in a packed room, packed. A hole has been torn in the roof. Four men have lowered a guy who's clearly paralyzed to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus has just told him, rise, pick up your bed and go. Well, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is either going to happen or it's not. Again, you have options this afternoon. You can be the crowd. You're like, maybe, maybe not, not sure. You can be Jesus. It all depends on your perspective. Where is your faith? In what and in whom is your faith? Because there's no third option. The man is either going to get up or he's not. Can I encourage you? Demonstrate the faith of Jesus. These people wanted Jesus' downfall. There would have been nothing more glorious for them in that moment than the paralyzed man staying, lying on the bed. And they would have been able to call him a liar, a fraud, a cheat. You declared that you can bring healing. Nothing happened. I say to you. Find those words very significant. Because we could just glaze over those words and not think anything of it because we're wanting to get to the miracle at this point. But he says, I say to you. So Jesus removes all doubt about who he's addressing. Everybody else is a spectator. Rise, pick up your bed, go home. I think you could have heard a pin drop in that place. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall. Hmm? Every person's eyes now firmly fixed on this paralyzed man. No hiding place for Jesus. The confidence, the conviction, the certainty 
about who he claimed to be is now right on the line. He can't present extenuating circumstances. He can't explain away why the man doesn't get up if he doesn't. He can't excuse it. This is do or die stuff. You're in or you're out. It's going to happen or not. Verse 12, glory to God, and he rose. Pause. I'd like to think, and I've had a couple of broken bones in my physical body, so I know what it's like, but I would like to think that as he rose, you could hear the cracking of the bones as they started to take their original state and shape and as his skeleton started to function and operate the way that God designed and created it to be. Jesus would have been pretty calm, pretty composed, no cares, no concerns. Now it's also worth noting that the healed man did as Jesus told him to, full obedience. And I think Jesus instructed him to take his bed with him as a reminder that he will never need that bed again. Amen. And I love the immediacy of the man's actions. Immediately he picked up his bed. He knew what he had just experienced. It was authentic. It was accepted. He endorsed all that Jesus had provided for him. The simple power of God's presence operating in his life. And so, as we draw our thoughts to a close this afternoon, in your own life, can I encourage you, Jesus will always do what only Jesus can do. There will be no fanfare, no red carpet moments, no I told you so. It's simply down to faith. And the enormity of this miracle cannot be lost on us today. The previously paralyzed man is now healed. I.e., he came and got not just what he wanted, he got what he needed and what he wanted, but he got more than that. He got the forgiveness of sins thrown in as well. And maybe in your life today, Jesus needs to deal with some of the spiritual strongholds before the healing, before the breakthrough, before the miracle, before the provision. So question for you, what are you prepared to do to encounter the one true and living God today? Because the Bible declares that he pushed his way through the crowd that had come to see Jesus. Now place yourself as a member of that crowd. The guy that was dropped down on a bed is now elbowing his way past you to go home. Ha! Who won? He won, but Jesus won. And the victory is yours in Jesus. Amen. Jesus will always do more than we could ever hope for or imagine. He started by forgiving his sins, healing his heart, and after that he healed that fragile, frail body. Real faith on display captures people's attention. And the faith of those four men, ordinary men, simple men, they would have had simple jobs, simple lives in very basic homes and accommodation, They were prepared to do whatever it took. The impediments were obvious, a crowd. They probably didn't have the right to even bring that man there, but they were prepared to break every protocol, every process. It's like do or die, am I going to get my breakthrough or not? And so friends, in your life today, 
your breakthrough, whatever your need is, what are you prepared to do? If you think attending a church service, giving your tithes and offerings, sitting in your cell meeting is sufficient, can I tell you, you're going to be horribly let down. God is impressed by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So there is no possibility of you being able to please God if you have no faith. It's not even like you can find an extenuating circumstances or or some viable excuse that you can present that he will accept. No. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So where's your faith at? In whom is your faith in? These four guys brought a paralyzed, fully grown man to a house that didn't belong to them when they saw the place was full, they were prepared to go up the side of this building. Financial cost of tearing the roof away. Probably, Peter, I'm sure, would have invoiced them for, for the repair of his roof. It would have been pretty embarrassing, I guess, right? You're trying to lug this guy up the side of a house. Like if he falls, you can't get him up the side of the house. It's all clumsy. It would have been awkward. But they put all that away. All of that went to one side. They've got a singular focus. One way or another, we have to get him to the feet of Jesus. That is where the breakthrough is, friends. So I ask the question again. What are you prepared to do to encounter the Lord in your own life? Because our hearts need to be postured and positioned to live in continual intimacy with God, to expect the unexpected, to believe for the best, to pray for provision, and to declare God's goodness over our lives. But a final thought. And I wonder, are we like the crowd in this story? Do we need to see the miracle unfold before our very eyes, before we begin to praise God and glorify him? That's what it says. That's what the word declares. Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. So the word all appears twice. So this man left first. He's first out the gate. He's barged his way through heaven knows how many people. And the word of God declares all were amazed. So not some So when he says all, that would be the original crowd plus his four friends. And they all glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Hmm. I just wonder, do we need to see the miracle in our own lives before we begin to praise and glorify God? In the majesty and the magnificence of this particular miracle, they ended up marveling at Jesus. Amen. So God can turn stuff around. The very people that were questioning, doubting, criticizing, being cynical of Jesus' ability and authority are now the same ones, just jaws dropping to the ground because they saw what Jesus did. Hmm. And yet the final words there in verse 12 remind me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, no heart conceived what the Lord has prepared for those who love him.